Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. We have a first-time guest joining us today from the beautiful state of Colorado and Colorado Springs. For the last couple decades, uh, he has worked alongside John Eldridge uh, in um, establishing and building that ministry in Colorado Springs. Recently, he has released a new book called Becoming a King, and uh, he's a dear friend of Aaron McHugh, who's been one of the most popular voices on our podcast his name is Morgan Snyder, and uh, I can tell you, just in our brief dialogue before we hit record here, uh, he is one of us. He is after all things good, true, and beautiful, and um, I'm just super excited to get to know him and his story today uh, and introduce you guys to him. So with that being said, Morgan, welcome to the conversation. Ashton, thank you. It's a real joy. Um, it's a joy to be among the like-hearted you know, there's all shapes and sizes in this world, and 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 it's a it's a tough world to navigate for the life of our soul and to um, find the life in which we were made and offer that life to others. And so, it's always a joy to connect with someone who's like-hearted that's chasing chasing after life. So, thanks for having me on your show. You bet, man. You bet. So, um, I gave you kind of a, a bumpy bio there on the, on the introduction for maybe our listeners that haven't ever crossed paths with you and your work in the world. Where do you typically begin? Oh man, that's a good question. Um, never, never the same place twice. I think <laughs> where my where my heart goes right now. Where do I begin? Um, I had one of the mentors. I, I sat under about seventy five mentors over two years in this process of this two decade of curating and distilling the recovery of this ancient path. And one of my mentors, uh, John Moorhead, he uh, had a battle with cancer, a vibrant physician, strong-hearted man, fought through death and made it through a greater life. And so then he had to face cancer. After 12 years, he lost that battle, but he knew he was going to die. And he had this rare privilege, Ashton, of being able to design his own grave marker. And on it, he wrote John Milton Moorhead. It said, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. End of construction. Thank you for your patience. Isn't that so good? That's good. I mean, when you say, where does it begin? I think what I come honestly as a man on this day, as a man with a, you know, a, a vocation in the world, a husband, a father, a friend, I come as a man under construction. Mm. Um, I have more uh, deconstructed and restored than I did a decade ago and a decade before then. And and there's so much that's not yet. But I, I say that with great hope. Mm. Um, you know, I've given my heart to becoming the kind of man and the kind of person that God can entrust with more of the care and the stewardship of creation in all of its forms. And I just love to uh, be shaped by men and women and shape others. And, and I've been going after that for uh, 22 years. Yes, yeah, specifically as alongside with John and wild at heart and Aaron work, I play. And uh, th- that's my heart is to become who I was meant to be. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about this ancient path. Um, and I, it really, it's the essence of your latest uh, book here, but kind of help give some structure to this for some of our listeners about um, awakening men to this idea that uh, unless the grain of wheat dies, it remains just a grain of wheat. 
but if it dies, it bears much fruit. This, this, path, this ancient path of awakening, the narrow path, if you will, um, is something has to die so that something can come alive. And, and I'm probably jumping all over the map right now, but I, I just kind of want to set the tone of where we are going for this, these aha after aha you had with 75 mentors to kind of start yes. constructing, giving name, narrative, and structure around this ancient path that quite honestly has been there forever, um, but you're kind of bringing it to the forefront and the dialogue as the gateway to all of our transformation. Yeah, there's a, one of the great heroes um, of the faith, uh, a guy named G.K. Chesterton, said this fascinating idea that captured me about 12 years ago. He said, every generation loses the path of life, and every generation is charged with its recovery. Hmm. Just a fascinating idea to think of like a pendulum that swings back and forth. Yeah. And to, to really just... Um, to align with the name, right, of this work that you do here, of everything true and good and beautiful flows from the source of all things, right? It's a reflection. Mm -hmm. The first time I heard that phrase was Frederick Buechner, and he talked about all things good, true, and beautiful, and he was talking about beauty, right? And he said, he was talking about a beautiful woman, and he said, he was noticing her beauty, and then he said, what I longed for is the beauty I longed for beyond the beauty I longed for in her. And what he was saying was she wasn't the source. She was a window. She was an expression into something that was uh, central to creation. And so I believe that we all, there is a path of life. There are these universal realities. You know, one wise uh, philosophy professor, mentor, Dallas Willard said, reality is what we bump into when we're wrong. (laughs) And I mean, if if you have kids, you learn right? If you drive a car and you get a speeding ticket, you learn that. If you're married, you learn that. Like reality is what we bump into when we're wrong. And I bump my head a lot. And Aaron and I spent a lot of uh, years on the bike, just pounding the pavement, you know, spinning wheels, just talking about all these bumps on our head where we kept bumping into reality. And so I believe that it's always a recovery. It's nothing new, but it's newly recovered. And every generation has a unique opportunity to live with an unprecedented challenge. And what I believe is an unprecedented, unique provision to say, how do we recover life? And that's very hopeful, Ashton, because we don't have to create it. We don't have to manufacture it. Our story doesn't begin with us. And I think that's one of the most fundamental challenges to set the tone of our conversation is we come with this belief that we're the center of our story. And, you know, Brene Brown says, so long as we are the center of our story, we will be, our main task will be engineering smallness. Mm. I just love that phrase. Like no matter how big your story is, it's engineering smallness that we were not meant to be independent beings. And that self-sufficiency in the long run, as we all know, becomes very exhausting. It becomes very depleting. But we, what, when we come to discover that there's a unique place for us in creation, that, that there is a center, a reality that's true and good and beautiful that invites us to participate and that our primary work is responding to that invitation and finding our place 
uh, to thrive in the context of a larger reality, that's when we find peace. That's when our curiosity deepens and that's when we can come alive. And so all of that is a journey of moving through death to a greater life. And so you, we see those themes, those universal themes through world religions and through history, through the films we love that move our hearts. There's these universal themes. We have to move through death in order to recover the life in which we were made for. That's good. That's good. Give me that Brene Brown quote again. Yeah, I love it. She talks about engineering smallness. Wow. And that's what, that's what we spend most of our energy doing <laughs> where, right, we set out yeah. to make a name for ourselves, yeah. make a little money, get something going, and it can have a noble name. It yeah. can have a noble ideal. So much of it happens in the name of faith or justice. But it, in the end, when we are the center of our story, it never grows beyond engineering smallness. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that needs to be the new commencement address everyone gets to hear. Um, engineering smallness. Um, I need to hear it. Um, daily. Exactly. <clears throat> so, um, narrow, this path is narrow. Narrow is the path to life and few people find it. After studying, um, older men, the sages, the people that had seen the path of death and resurrection in their lives, relationships, vocations, and what have you. Um, talk to me about the themes that you consistently found with individuals on this narrow path that leads to life. What, what, was, what, what was a consistent aha that you found as you chatted with these guys over the years? Yeah, um, what was really fascinating, it started with longing and pain. I think that's the most fair way to begin is mm-hmm. I was a passionate young man, longing and pain. I wanted to do meaningful work and have meaningful relationship and, I'm an intense, passionate person, and I'm a lifetime like student, a voracious a learner. And so I threw myself at the world, and things weren't going so well, not on the outside, and that was the key, hmm. but on the inside. I was profoundly successful. I was winning the game. I won the game. I won the biggest story I could find, that engineering smallness, <laughs> and I had lost my soul. Right? So I found myself um, winning, you know, straight A's and a beautiful um, girlfriend and student government president. And, and there was a day where I looked in the mirror and it happened to be the day before I left for college. And I saw what I can only describe as a man without a soul. I remember thinking, Ashton, if I face what I only know is to be God, I didn't have any relationship with religion or faith or a person beyond um, humanity. And I said, I'll have nothing to say for myself because I won the game, but I did it for me. And so I went on a quest to find something more true, something more good, something more beautiful. And and what I found um, was that I wasn't looking for something so much as I was being chased after. Mm. Something was pursued pursuing me and I even just get emotional thinking about like what it's like when we respond to love like chasing us you know Tozier said that God is the hound dog of heaven yeah, and so he good. is always coming right so good it just I love it and so so where I found um in those moments were uh, I want to come alive I I know I'm made for more I came into a relationship with faith but what I found was my gifting propelled me into an adult world 
where I was a man on the outside, but inside I was a boy. Inside I was uninitiated. Mm-hmm. I think the term I would use maybe lacking wholeheartedness. Mm-hmm. And so on the outside I was killing it. Now in, in, in my faith work, in my vocation, young marriage, young kids, young career, but inside the feeling of I'm always behind. The feeling of it's never enough, a constant sense of fear and anxiety. So I knew there were, I, I started asking the questions, Ash, and I found those older men. I said, what, what is the most important thing? What are the pitfalls? Where do we find life? How do we recover that place that Beekner talks about where the world's deep need is met by our deep gladness? Yeah. And so I asked those men and I had conversation after conversation and it was rich because it was Sometimes it was letter correspondence, handwritten letters. Other times it was over a pint and a cigar at a campfire. But they rolled in over time. And there were unique pieces of counsel, but there were these universal pieces as well. And just two to point out um, in this moment that, that I'm kind of impressed to share with this tribe is the first was um, – the, the number one theme, okay, you take over 75 men and women. It was fascinating. The number one theme that was talked about, it was not what I would have expected. It was spoken mostly out of regret with tears in the eyes of men saying things like, I wish I would have spent more time being present with my young children and the wife of my youth. Men said, I wish I would have played more. Mm. I wish I wouldn't have taken it all so seriously. I, I wish I would have recovered joy. I wish I would have learned how to put my feet up on my desk and drop my pencil and say, that's enough for a day. That's a good day. And what those men were echoing were the stories of this, this thing that we, I would name the self-life, that without something greater, without moving through death to life, without um, coming to learn how to live, not carrying people and things, we take on the weight of the world. And so we, we, you know, no one ever starts out a marriage wanting to get divorced. No one ever starts out having kids that they raise that don't want to have anything to do with them. We don't start out that way. But where does it go wrong? And, and, and that was the grief and the men inviting me to say, start to play. Take mm-hmm. a two-week vacation. Don't take it all so seriously. Try to be present with your kids. And here's what's important. As we start doing those things, our souls surface and we see the underlying issues that are in the way that have to be contended with for us to become that kind of person that can actually play that can learn to live lightly and can be present to the people entrusted to our care. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, just hearing you process through that, you don't talk like that or share that posture or worldview unless you've, unless you've hit the bottom and found, Mm -hmm. Oh, that, that small story that I thought was so significant, um, it's here today, gone tomorrow. There's a bigger life. There's a bigger something I can live my life from. Um, yeah. I would assume that story after story, person after person, all had those 
rock bottom moments, did they not? I mean, in their path of becoming, at some point, there is something which you can't manufacture, by the way. I think I need to lead with that caveat. You know, sometimes some people are like, I feel like I'm not living the great life I long to, so I'm going to go out and manufacture my downfall or whatever. No, it, it just, it's like you give way to it. It happens. Uh, you just have to consent to it, I think, to use your language. Talk, talk to me about that idea, because I think that's important for our listeners to hear. Yeah, it's a really sacred question. Uh, it was it was asked to me by a mentor. Um, that's a really stunning story of transformation. And he asked me, "Have you got to your bottom? Have you hit your bottom?" And it, it was a very sobering and dignifying question because he he works with a ton of people in recovery. He's a private equities manager, multimillionaire, spent time in federal prison. He's been through it all. He's seen it. And he's a man of few words. But in his counsel, he's after you've been through federal prison and after you've won, you know, made tens of millions and lost tens of millions, after you have raised a family and lost a family, you, you become a sort of person that understands a little bit more about where to find that which is true, good, and beautiful. And, and, and I was talking to him saying, I was just bumping my head against the wall saying, I'm going after these men, but like, what do you do when you're dealing with people with crisis and they just won't choose life? Like, and you try again and again. And he was very patient and he said, they have to find their bottom. And until a person finds their bottom, you know, I, I just love that um, God is so profoundly patient mm. like it, it, it he's so patient in allowing us to flounder and even experience um self-inflicted pain in order that we can come to a place where we say i i need i stand in need and until a person has reached their bottom um there's there's very little we can do other than um invite question invite consideration, invite curiosity to be what's so great is when we hit our bottom, um, what we find is that is actually the beginning of new life. That's the doorway. That's the invitation. And it sounds like I, I hear in your voice and I hear in your comments, you know what it's like to hit a bottom, <laughs> move through. Yes. Oh, yes. 2012. Um, I sure do. I, you quoted someone uh, so forgive me, I don't know who it was. God waits to be wanted. Yes, that was A.W. Tozer. I just love it. He, yeah. he waits to be wanted. Yeah. I remember I, I, I was just beginning a journey of trying to come to know who God is. It really is. Like, what is he really like? And what is the true story? And, and I was exposed to um, you know, Judaism. My dad's a Jew and, and, uh, and Catholicism. My mom was Catholic and, and, and none of it... Um, if afforded me an, an invitation into a, a true vibrant relationship with God. There's beauty in Judaism. There's beauty in Catholicism. But what I'm saying is in my household, that was not a faith-filled center. But I went on this wild venture walking away from all my addictions, uh, and I just needed to detox. And I went to Europe with a backpack and a, and, and a couple bucks, and I ended up in this cathedral, in St. Paul's Cathedral in, in London. I don't know that I've ever shared this story. And I was in front of this this, this old, apparently famous religious painting that, you know, I, I, I wasn't an art connoisseur. I was just a 
dirtbag backpacker. <laughs> and it was a picture of Revelations 3 where it says God stands at the door and he knocks. And if you let him in, he wants to share a meal with you. Mm. And it says, behold, it's God's voice saying, I stand at the door and knock. And on this painting, Ashton, what I saw was that the, there was only a handle on one side of the door. And it was on the inside. Yeah. Yes. Like I was so moved and I just crumbled on the floor because I realized like, oh, the God, the true God, the God of love and laughter and joy and in intervention and intimacy and play the God that there is a God pursuing me, but he's on the outside of a door that only I have the handle. And it was my task to say, I will invite you in to unlearn you as I have learned you wrong and receive you as you truly are. And that began my process of moving into a, you know, a restored life. Mm. Hand, Hand clap for a beautiful metaphor. The handle is on the inside. It's an inside job. Yes, the, it is. The divine waits. And then we consent. I think I put this in my notes here, that that at some point you are becoming a student, becoming a son, and consenting to the slow and steady process of inner transformation. Um, talk to me about slow and steady, and that well, when we talk about the soul, that microwaves and drive-throughs, that's not how this deal works. Well, I'll tell you this. Slow and, set, slow and steady is not sexy. Right. And it doesn't sell, yeah. right? That doesn't sell. <laughs> yeah. You get on the internet, and that's, that's a bad idea. You want to sell books? Don't write books on slow and steady. Yeah. Right? If, uh, don't talk about a decade. Talk about a moment. Mm-hmm. Right? What mm-hmm. we want, we want it cheap. We want it quick. And we want it easy. And yet there's a way things work. There's a way things work. And nature is is meant to be our first sacred text. And when you look at nature and you observe reality, you see that the world offers quick, cheap, and easy. But the things that last take time. That the best things in life take time and the most important things are always invisible. And so it's part of finding your bottom of we can try to do it quick, cheap, and easy. And in time and over time, we will learn that though it it seems to offer the promise of life, it never really comes through. And so many young people, you know, with so much drive and ambition and gifting, we throw ourselves to the world and the danger of living in an information um, age in an age of technology is there's so much leverage, right? There's so much leverage and leverage works both ways. And it's not until we weather storms and drought that we actually find the quality and condition of the root system, Hmm. that unseen things get exposed. And so the fact of the matter is when we want life, there is a process and there is a path and it takes time. And as one mentor said, we can have humility or humiliation. Yeah, yeah. But in this instance, there isn't a third way. And so I remember turning to mentors and, and one of them said, just look at older men, find the men in their 50s, 60s and 70s and just ask where'd they get taken out? Hmm. Where'd they lose heart? 
Where'd they lose the things that mattered most and why is it so? And so what I saw was that the shortcuts actually don't produce life. But as a young man, as a young person, we have exclamation points in our beliefs. And there's a process where those exclamation points have to be exchanged for question marks. And I think I'm curious for you, Ashton, with real estate, you know, you, you've thrived in that world and it's a perfect canvas to explore these ideas of the, of the conflict between quick, cheap and easy and leverage and slow and steady wins the race. Like I I am sure you see it day in and day out lived out over time in that, in that context. No, absolutely. I mean, at some point, business, life, relationships, soul, they, they all speak the same language. Um, and, and the only way I think you learn to buy into the long game is by participating with it. Because mm. um, a day, a week, a month, uh, anything that we long for to enjoy and experience, um, to get it fast, that's just never sustainable. There will be burnout. Um, but all of those things that are good, true, and beautiful, love and joy and peace, name all the fruits of the Spirit, the things that fill our soul, um, there is a shift into learning the long game. Uh, and, yes. bo- and, 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 and the law of the harvest that goes with that, right? That day after day, we till the field, we put some seeds in there, and then someone else from somewhere else brings the rain, changes the seasons, and does what we can't do. Um, yes, but it's, it's pulling the door and saying, come on in. And, um, Oh, I remember, yeah, I remember sitting with a mentor on this very topic and, you know, I was a young man that wanted the short game. I want you, right. I was pissed (laughs) when anyone said you have to take time, right? I, I wanted, and I looked all around my world and we see things not as they are. We see them as we are. And so what I saw was a world of people that got shortcuts. And so I said, this is crap. Like it's unfair. It's a stacked deck and I'm the only one, right? It's a real victim mentality. I remember sitting with a wise older man with light in his eyes, you know, a wasting away body, but young at heart. Mm. And he said, you know, some decades are harder than other decades. And when he said that, I was like pissed. I said, (laughs) wait a second. What do you mean something? I'm, I'm just trying to talk about the hour in front of me and I'm trying to get through Valentine's, Valentine's Day without yeah. a train wreck, yeah. you know? Some decades are harder than other decades and it began this new shifting of what if I was meant to live in the day and measure in the decade. And I came to this realization mm-hmm. that actually a decade is, is a very soulful portion of metrics but like the stock market the day is just schizophrenic and unhelpful in measurement and so that same mentor in that conversation years ago said understand that you will reap in the next decade what you sow in this decade Hmm. and and at the time it was like it, it the long game felt so unattractive but it was only through enough pain that i said okay it's not working and the division between my inner life and my outer life there i no longer want this disintegrity this lack of integrity of soul and now i just want to pause and say 20 years into marriage i now have two children six 
16 and 13. And we've been through hell and back. And you know, there was a time in 2008 um, that our marriage looked like the, the real estate market. It just crashed. And um, my wife had major anxiety and depression, ended up in tre- treatment, hospitalization for suicide risk. And I felt like I was losing everything. And I realized the problems weren't with my wife. The problems were in my own soul. And fast forward, looking over more than a decade, my wife is thriving. And she's the most beautiful human being I have ever encountered. My kids are thriving. And there are days where we're in the midst of it. Right now it's COVID season and so much loss and struggle and unrest and questions. And, you know, I launched Becoming a King right at potentially the worst time when it comes on a human scale to launch a message. And yet we're all doing really, really well. We're reaping now what we sowed a decade ago. We took a risk and we didn't know what the ROI would be. And I can tell you like with all my heart, it's worth it. The long game works. There's always a few, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, is the narrow path the place where we finally stare the pain that we have in the eyes? Is, is that where we start asking the question, what are we going to do with our pain? In the words of, you know, Father Richard Rohr, we either transmit it or it transforms us. Um, talk to me about, you've got maybe thousands, hundreds of thousands of case studies of walking through life with guys through... Um, a lot of a lot of life's initiation. Talk to me about this concept about our pain and what we do with it. Yeah, that's that's really holy. And Ashton, even as you ask that question, I, I find this pause because um, there's a quote that says, um, "Act kindly and mercifully, because everyone faces a brutal battle." Hmm. There's so much suffering in our world, and so much of it is hidden and very personal, and there is tremendous pain um, in the hearts of every person that's joining us for this podcast. And so I want to dive into this very soberly and very kindly. Um, But what I would say, Ashton, is that pain, um, among other things, is an immensely kind teacher if we want it to be. Hmm. Parker Palmer is a brilliant writer and um, you know, a little different um, bend than me. He's a pacifist, and, and uh, yet he's a beautiful sage, and I have really benefited from his life and his work. And he talks a lot about pain and what we do with it. And so um, what I would ask back is, what are you doing with your pain? Right? Hmm. I would, yeah. I would invite people to pause and say, what do you do with your pain right now? Because you have to start in the present moment. And so much of um, our addiction is simply, and we we, we want to change how we feel, right? I had um, an extra beer last night, not because I wanted to enjoy that beer and savor the, 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 cream of creation, you know, with barley, wheat and hops. Like it was because I had a really tough day and, and I went on a run and it, it wasn't enough. And so I just needed to change how I feel. And it wasn't until my second one that I realized like, 
oh, this isn't for joy. This is for comfort. This is for self-soothing and it's not good. There's a, it's a signpost. And so we medicate to change how we feel and often that's to numb the pain. And so there are a lot of things we can do with our pain and we can minimize it, which is deeply unhelpful. We can justify it, which is unhelpful. We can medicate it, numb it. But there comes a point in a journey where it takes great courage to name it and to be honest about its impact on us and what we're doing with it. And I believe, you know, a wound ungrieved is a wound unhealed. Mm -hmm. And I believe that pain is actually one of the brilliant narrow gates that can lead us back to the path of life, that it's a, it's beckoning us. It's asking us questions. Um, you know, I'm facing some pain right now in my relationship with my daughter. Um, I, I, I long to become the kind of father that communicates with my actions. There's nothing you can do or not do or say or not say that will cause me to withdraw my delight. That's my heart. Mm. That's my intention. And yet when I'm interacting with her in this rite of passage at 13, she has such a different temperament than me, such a different rhythm than me, different gifting, different interests. And I'm trying to be a student of her heart and I just keep missing the mark. And I'm watching the months go by and the years go by and and I'm feeling a lot of pain of just not being yet the man who can father her well. And I can, what I'm doing with that pain today is very important. And you can name it. I mean, I think that's the great leap in awareness, consciousness, which in turn leads to presence, is naming that pain. Then, then you can see it for what it is and listen to it. And, and maybe then you could be introduced to its kindness. I think that's just, I'm connecting dots out loud here. Um, yeah, I know. I think that's good. And let me connect one other dot please. with naming it. I'd also say being aware of the power of shame mm-hmm. that causes us to be unwilling to accept the pain mm-hmm. because shame, that feeling, that pervasive feeling of uh, unworthiness of I, I'm not, I lack, I don't deserve, right? I'm not good enough. Um, I'm not who you think I am or who I think I am. Shame um, is the inverse of that that sense, of that profound sense of worthiness, of love and belonging, and and it's profoundly debilitating. And so we all operate with a degree of shame, um, and that's part of the moving to resurrection out of death. And so long as we are operating under shame, pain can simply feel overwhelming mm. and unmanageable. Because it feels like the verdict on who I am, right? Even with my daughter, I can name the pain. But what surfaces is the shame of, well, maybe I'm just a shitty dad, hmm. yeah. right? Maybe I'm actually not a good man. Maybe I'm faking it. May, like, and, and there are all these indictments that are actually coming against my identity. But when I move through shame and I say, wait, that is not true. I know who I am. Like, I am a son of the living God, the most true thing about me is the most true thing about every human being, every race, every nationality, every socioeconomic group, that we are made in the image of the living God, that every person has inherent 
dignity and inestimable worth. And so I can sit in that moment and say, I know who I am. The truest thing about me is I'm a good man with God's heart in me. And I am a loving father. And I have her best interests in mind. And therefore, I can deal with the fact that my overworking, my striving, my achieving is causing harm where she's going to other places that are more joyful. Mm-hmm. I lack joy. Now, that's not condemning when I am honest with shame and its voice. But so long as we stay under the voice of shame, the pain can just be um overbearing and so that's why we don't want to name it because it just feels mm-hmm. like debilitating does mm-hmm. that make sense 100 percent. no i was just sitting here going so the conversation the thing underneath the thing with shame and pain is a conversation about identity exactly yeah. because we will never live yeah. beyond our identity I and mean, that's why one of the most brutal statements i've ever heard in kind of the religious culture is they're just a sinner saved by grace Sinner saved by grace. Well, the problem is when you're naming that identity, <laughs> you, you never problem. live beyond a sinner. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Right, and that's like I love uh, AA and SA and NA. Like all of the um, the twelve step groups are amazing. I, I've I experienced so much fruit in so many lives of, of of friends as we walk through that. And yet, one of the challenges I, I struggle with is um, naming I'm an addict. Like mm. I appreciate owning the impact of our choices. Um, but I want to say out loud, um, it, it, that simply isn't true. I, I am an image bearer of the living God who struggles with profound addiction. And that's fair. And my addictions cause great harm. But that is not the truest mm-hmm. thing about who I am. And we have to start with recovery of identity. So I'm glad you pointed that out yeah. because it always gets back to recovering identity. That's good. That's good. Hero of mine, Jim Finley. He always states, nothing less than infinite infinite union with infinite love will ever be enough for us. Simultaneously, nothing less than infinite union with infinite love will ever be able to name you. And it's like, I can run out the door like Forrest Gump on that one. So (laughs) good. So good. And and he's the kind of man, you know, Sherry and I, my wife and I have sat under his teaching and he's lived that, right? He's become... I'm the kind of person that that's not just information, yeah. that's embodiment. Yeah, He's yeah, yeah. come to that. And so when you're in his presence, you feel that that's true for him, and therefore it's made available for us. Yeah. And, and what's so important, like we have infinite need, and that's the thing is we our souls have infinite need. They have finite capacity. And this is so key, but they have infinite need. And that infinite need can only be matched by, by God's infinite desire and capacity to meet those needs. And what it does is it frees us to become people of integrity and strength in a brutal world where we can't control all the circumstances and outcomes of our work, of our relationships. We can control some, but not all. And when we receive that infinite um, delight in who we are and resources uh, that, that live beyond us, then we can become unstoppable. Mm-hmm. Talk about that move from intellectual knowing to experiential reality. I, I think one of the great leaps in my spiritual life has been 
taking all of the what have you from doctrine, theology, good ideas, quotes from this guy and that guy, and actually allowing them some space in the heart and becoming the things we live, move, and have our being in. I think that is a huge, huge thing as we talk about the narrow path, that you actually put this stuff into practice for once. Um, Hold my hand on that conversation. Yeah, you know, I wanted to write this book over a decade ago. Um, I I, I believe um, I have a gift to lead and communicate, and God was very clear with me, very very strong in saying, uh, I want you to first become the kind of person that I can entrust with the stewardship of this message. Hmm. And only then do I want you to invest the time that it will take to offer this message in a form that will be accessible, that will be crafted that in a way that it can bring transformation in the lives of other people. And then only then will we work together to find a way to get it out to the world, to reach the many and find the few. And it was frustrating because like at the time I wanted to go for it, right? I wanted to change the world. I wanted to change the world since I was a little kid. I remember organizing these like crazy invasions of cowboys and Indians when I was eight (laughs) to save, you know, get the bad guy and save the damsel in distress, take out the werewolf, which those were two different things, by the way, (laughs) just to be careful. Um, So the reality of process is so important. And here's the key, Ashton, that I've found is we live in an age where information, knowing about, knowing content is exponentially increasing, almost towards an infinite curve. It's just really fascinating to do a study on this. I've, I've studied with Richard, Richard Swenson and the author of Margin, and we've had a brilliant mentor relationship and I've podcasted on this. But to look in time and history, we are roughly at a 0.0001% of all of human history. And, and, and there's a scale there, there because there's different beliefs. But when you look at it conservatively, We're in this unique, unprecedented experience, nothing to do with COVID. I'm talking about the age of humanity, of this exponential increase in travel, in in leverage of weapons, in communication, in information. So we, as a culture, and then you put on gifted people, which are all the people listening to this podcast, we know more than we have lived. Hmm. That's just a fact. We have way too much knowing. And the problem is there's a way things work that wisdom, it says, was the first work of all creation. So you have this creator, the created creation, and it says that Lady Wisdom was the craftsman at their side, Mm. crafting the world. Literally, the world was crafted by wisdom, imbued with wisdom, like infused with Mm. wisdom. And so wisdom is the way things work. It's the slow and steady that wins the race. And so we know more than we've lived. And so much of the humility of being a leader is allowing the time and the practicing for our gifting to catch our, 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 our life to catch up with our knowing, our living to catch up with our knowing. And so I, one of my strong counsels to people is it's, it's really heroic and risky to actually lay down your gifting for a time. 
to actually put to death your gifting, to crucify your gifting so that you can become the kind of person that knows you're loved apart from what you do. You have mm -hmm. to become the kind of person, if yeah. you ever want your gifting to be free, to know you're loved apart from what you do. And it's only through that process then you can take it back up. And what you find is we know them more than we've lived. And I believe that things that truly last and truly bring transformation over time are not simply knowledge regurgitated or, you know, believe we, we live in a bulimic culture um, where we, we binge and purge, binge and purge on information, but it's a gnosko knowing. It's a heart knowledge. Like the, the Jews um, described it as a, it was an idiom for sexual intimacy. It was a knowing like a man and a woman, no sexual intimacy in the context of a loving marriage. That's true knowing, and that's what's available, and that needs to be what we're after. And so we have to discipline ourselves on, on what we do with all the abundance, the overabundance of information in our age. Hmm. Man, I feel like we could go for about three hours here. Um, we may have to have you I on know, again sometime. I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions for you as well. But I really appreciate. It. I just I love what you're doing, and you're you're just drawing out all things good and true and beautiful. Point us to true north, and it's the questions that are meant to turn us back to um, the things that matter most. And so I love that you're a man of the questions, and I love that you're a student, and invite all of us listeners on your podcast to ask great questions. So thank you. And thank you. Yeah. At some point, uh, on the narrow path, you realize the questions are the answers. Um, <clears throat> so let me ask this, uh, I always ask people this and coming off of your book and especially the thousands of stories and moments that, uh, you've been entrusted over the last two decades today, as you look backwards and connect those dots, um, what advice would you give to your younger self? Mm. Yeah, it, it circles back. I said in our, our first bit of dialogue, there were two things I wanted to reflect, and we only got to one. But I think this would be the second that's tied to uh, my observations about play. I remember um, watching some young men kind of a version of my younger self sitting with Dallas Willard, this, this heroic, ancient philosopher. And they said, what do you do on a normal day to um, care for your soul and become the kind of person that you were made to be? And Dallas, as a very grandfatherly, sage, Yoda-esque response, said, you have to be very careful with that question because there are no ordinary days. Mm. and just that Ashton I feel the weight come off my shoulders right yeah. like everyone's in shell-shocked and like even in our world right now like no one I'm encountering is operating with a full tank yeah. right people are limping so the question becomes what is I what is it that I can do that's available to me on every day and one of the simple practices that I've learned that I would invite our listeners to explore. And I dive deep into this and in becoming a king and all things that become good soil. But one of my new practices through, like you, bottoming out and coming to resurrection is the first thing I do on every day when my eyes open before I even move in my bed is I pause and I, I declare in my soul, God, I believe you to be a good father. 
and I am your son. I want to learn you as you truly are, not as I've learned you to be. And so I invite you today, God, to be my true father. And I accept your invitation today to become your son. And I ask that that would be the lens by which I see as I get out of this bed and I move forward. And it's a simple prayer of sorts that allows me to move forward that whatever else I encounter, I start with, it's not up to me. Mm-hmm. I am not the center of my story, that there is something good and something true, something beautiful, something utterly personal that is the center of reality that is inviting me to participate and respond and take my place established since before my days on this earth to thrive and to have a meaningful role in the great story. And that gives me rest. That gives me abundance in the place of scarcity. It gives me courage in the place of fear. It gives me confidence in the place of shame. And it allows me to tap into a power beyond my own personal resources. That one thing can change your life. Rest, abundance, confidence, power. Ah, that's what we're after. That was a beautiful benediction you just gave us, by the way. Um, Good. <laughs> well, man, I am uh, super grateful for your work. I'm I'm beyond thankful that we had you on today, and I hope that we can continue to. Uh, build this relationship and and have you on this podcast again. Maybe even one day you and I will be waist deep in a in a river fly fishing somewhere. That sounds sounds like the next that, appropriate step. <laughs> oh, that would be tremendous. I would deeply enjoy that. And um, I, I really feel resonance with your tribe and what you're offering, Ashton. And so I, I wanted to offer a gift on uh, becomingaking.com. There's a hidden page that's just forward slash gift, and in there. Uh, I, I took a, a step that um, was was a little nuts and was unplanned, but in hindsight, worth the risk of vulnerability. And I brought my wife into the studio and several wives of some of my closest allies, Aaron McHugh's wife being one of them. And I asked them the question, what's it like to live with a man over a decade who's consented to the slow and steady path of becoming the kind of man in whom God can entrust more of the care of his kingdom. And we had a really bold, uh, risky conversation. And there's a two-part collection. It's free just as a gift to your tribe that they can check out on that page. It's a really great conversation starter to go deeper into what we're talking about. Great conversation between husbands and wives and a real invitation to, to simply say, I want to say with all my heart, it's worth it. It's worth it. There's life. And it's available. Beautiful. Beautiful. So give me that side again, becomingaking.com yep. forward slash gift. Yep. Forward slash gift. G-I-F-T. Beautiful. Well, man, um, high five through the microphone. Thank you again for your generosity today. And um, we're going to have you on again. We got way more to talk about down the road. Yes. Great to be with you. 